All right, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans 7 for the last time, at least in this series. Romans 7. And what I've done and how I've treated these last verses, beginning about verse 13 or 14 and through the end of the chapter, is that we've had two sermons that were just addressing them generally. And we had some points that we drew out of them, but we didn't walk down through the verses and get into the specifics. That's what I want to do this morning for our last sermon. I'll mention this. I uh, forgot to mention it early, uh, earlier. Happy Father's Day to uh, all of you. And uh, as always, we remember that we're rejoicing with those who rejoice in Father's Day and weeping with those who weep and uh, doing both of those in this time. And um, one thing when I think about Father's Day, I think more, uh, less about uh, fathering and more just uh, specifically more about uh, being a man and the uniqueness of masculinity in God's design uh, and, uh, than I do just specifically about fathering. So if I do give charges in this time, it's always just to men to be godly men. Um, and uh, of course, as we have seen in our culture, there is a blurring of uh, gender anyway and God's design for men and women and uh, that is tragic, that is terrible um, and we uphold God's beautiful design in men and how He's uniquely created them and women and how He's uniquely created them and their differing roles and functions yet equality in the image of God. It's an amazing thing that He has done. Uh, he has made us equally in the image of God and uh, equally valuable as human beings and able to contribute, and yet He has designed each differently uh, for a purpose, and that purpose ultimately is revealed in Ephesians 5 to show the picture of the union between Christ and His church in that institution of marriage. It was the whole purpose of it. Um, and so, But uh, I want to encourage our men to be men in, in keeping with this passage in Romans 7, one thing, the one thing that prevents us from being godly men in our lives is our indwelling sin. Uh, it prevents us from being who God has called us to be. It's a real problem. That's one thing we're learning in Romans 7 is that your indwelling sin was a problem before God saved you and it's still a problem now. And it's going to keep you from being the a person that God has called you to be and God has designed you to be. It's a massive problem. And I hope that comes out this morning as we walk through this passage. I'm going to end up reading these verses, so I'm not going to read the whole passage again this morning. Um, I'm just going to begin in verse 21 and read through verse 25, and then I'm going to pause, I'll pray, and then we'll uh, dive into the text. Paul says in Romans 7, verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's just pause, ask God's blessing on the text, and we'll dive in. Father, this is our last week in this very important chapter and very important section before we enter into Romans 8. And so I'm praying now for your help to see what we need to see here. Um, I pray that your spirit would carry these words into the hearts and minds of everyone here, that we would learn from this and grow uh, from this passage, and it would cause us to love and appreciate Jesus even more. Gift me now to do what you have uh, set me here to do, as I confess that I cannot do anything that would bear fruit apart from you. So I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. First of all, I want you to notice in verses 13 and 14 that I'll read now, the connection, the connection in these verses. These two verses connect us, connect the first 12 verses to the last half of the chapter. They're connecting verses. Let me show you that. He says in verse 13, Did that which is good, meaning the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let me just stop right there. That's the last verse where Paul is talking about himself and his relationship to the law previous to being a Christian. The problem he experienced is that the law taught him what sin was, and he, it actually exposed more and more sin in his heart. Remember? It was given, what he's saying here is that the law was given, if you go all the way back to Mount Sinai and to Moses, the law was given in part for this reason, to expose how sinful we are, to show us our need of grace and the Savior. Right? That's what he's saying. And our own sin, our own personal sin, becomes sinful beyond measure. As the psalmist cried out, Psalm 38, my, the, the, my sins are more than the hairs on my head. They're too heavy for me. I can't bear them, you see. That's what the law does with a sinner. But then in verse 14, here's the transition. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh under sin. In other words, he transitioned now from speaking about himself in the past to speaking about himself in what? The present, right? He says, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. The law is spiritual in that it's breathed out by God's Spirit, and it is spiritual in that it must be obeyed from the heart with the genuine heart of the faith from the spirit of an individual. That's how, God, that's how God intends the law to be obeyed, not externally, not like just like the Pharisees or many of them used to do, just in this external fashion, I'm going to keep the law externally, and they neglect the heart. No, it must come from the heart. True obedience that God would consider righteous and holy comes right from the heart, just in our worship of Him. Jesus told the woman at the well, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in what? Spirit and in truth. It can't just be external and formal. It's got to be from the heart, you see. 
It's the same with the law. But here's the problem, he says in verse 14. He says, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, listen to this, sold under sin. Now pause right there. He's clearly speaking in present tense terms, and I've shared with you before that I think what Paul's doing in verses 14 and beyond is speaking of himself as a Christian and has struggled with the law and sin. But there are people, believe it or not, who disagree with me. And many of them have more degrees behind their name than I do, and they've written big commentaries on this passage. And they say, no, 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 no. Paul cannot be referring to himself as a Christian here. And the proof is in verse 14, or one of the evidences they bring. Because Paul says, I am sold under sin. And that word sold means to be sold as a slave. And what Paul has already made clear in chapter 6 is that we have been set free from slavery to sin. That we are no longer under slavery to sin. And that's a valid point. But what I say is this. Here's what I think they're missing. Paul is saying this. I have been, in the tense, and I won't go into all of this, but the the tense of this verb in the underlying Greek language is the tense that indicates something that happened in the past, but has carrying on results right into the present. See, what Paul, I think, is saying in this verse is this. That old slavery to sin that we had, we've been saved from in one sense. That power's been broken, so you and I do not have to sin. We do not have to give in to temptation. But what Paul is about to explain is we still experience the lingering effects of it. It's why, Paul says, we, we want to do good and we want to obey, but we find we cannot carry it out. Those old lingering effects that we, uh, from our conception we were born into sin due to the fall of Adam, everything we looked at in chapter 5 still has influence in our lives. We need to be aware of that, don't we, friends? That old sinful nature, Paul calls it in Ephesians 4, the old man that we're supposed to put off, is still there. It it still has influence in us, and if we're conscientious Christians, we experience that influence all the time when we want to do right and we end up doing wrong, right? We experience it all the time. That's the connection. He's about to show us this problem that we still have as a Christian, even though we have been saved from sin's penalty and power, the presence of it is still there and that presence influences it. Now, let me say this, we will learn in Romans 8 what to do with that influence, how to by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body and not submit ourselves as slaves to that sin, but to obey God. We're going to learn the key to this is by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but He's laying the groundwork here, okay? So that is the connection. Now in verse 15, Paul expresses, listen now, confusion and the fact that he is conflicted. This is a confused and conflicted man. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not understand what I'm doing. Why? For I do not do what I want but the very thing I, I, I do the very thing I hate. That is a man who is both confused and conflicted, right? He, he's, he wants to do one thing, 
and he hates something else, but he ends up doing the thing he hates and not the things he wants. He's like, I don't even understand what I'm doing. I don't understand what I'm, what I'm saying right now in, in this sinful response. I, I don't understand what I'm doing. I'm confused and I'm conflicted. Now, Paul is going to teach us that he's ultimately not confused and conflicted, but he's sharing this experience for our sake because I'm sure, as I asked you the last two weeks, do these verses resonate with you? And I saw a lot of nods saying, yes, they do. This is really one of the key verses that resonates. I don't understand my own actions. Why can't I get my act together, so to speak? Why can't I just do what I'm supposed to do, right? People get into this state. They are confused, and it is because they want to do one thing, but they do something else. He is conflicted. Now, it is important to notice this. He wants to do good. Remember, we've talked about that as a key indicator that a person has been born again. They no longer want to live the same way they used to. Just like Paul said, they no longer want to live as the Gentiles do or everyone else does in the futility of their minds. They don't want to live that way anymore. They want to change. They want to live now for God. They've come to delight in the law of God and they want to obey Him and they want to serve Him. It's important to understand that. And on the other side, the flip side of the same coin, you notice He hates sin. You notice he's not indifferent to it. He's not confused about what's right and wrong. (laughs) He's not confused about what he should or shouldn't do. He knows that the law is good, and he, look at the end of verse 15, he hates his sin. There's a hatred now he has for what God has said no to. That's another indicator that a person is born again. And another reason I believe Paul's talking about himself as a Christian person. Only Christian people talk like that. The problem with the world is they just love sin, and they love nothing else other than sin, you see. So, he hates his sin. He wants to do good. Christians are not to be indifferent to sin. We are to hate sin. As a matter of fact, Paul will command us in Romans 12, verse 9, he'll say, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. There's a way in which I think, just a side note, In our battle against sin, we need to learn to hate it. I heard one preacher once say, he was dealing with a particular sin for a number of years. And actually it was anger. He said, I was an angry man. And God worked on him over time and he said, that sin had to become like vomit in my mouth before I really could change from that. He had to be shown its awfulness, its evilness, its destructiveness. It had to become like he just couldn't stand it anymore. He abhorred it because there's nothing like that to motivate a person then to pursue what is right and find the key to living in a way that you're supposed to be doing in that particular area, you see. So Paul isn't teaching us here, friends. Make no mistake, Paul is not teaching us to be okay with our sin or with sin in general. Sometimes Christians, especially young Christians, can fall into this time period in their lives where they have this confusion and conflict going on. I don't know if you've been through that or if you've discipled other people through it. They come into the Christian experience 
you know, with bells and whistles on, and, uh, and God gives them some reprieve from uh, their sins. But all of a sudden now, that indwelling sin rears its head, and they begin to fall into sin. And they get so confused and so conflicted. This is why Paul puts this here. This is why we need to train new disciples that you still have this indwelling sin. It's still going to pose problems. It's not going to have dominion over you, but you need to learn to rule over it by the power of the Holy Spirit, you see. Otherwise, they're going to be so confused. What happens is, see, sin, defeat, results in discouragement. Christians get discouraged when the defeat continues. Okay, And the problem with that is if it's not corrected pretty quickly with the gospel, that defeat that led to discouragement leads to more defeat because discouraged Christians are in a dangerous place because uh, that's when the devil wreaks havoc and their own flesh and sin. And then that discouragement, friends, leads to despair. Despair is hopelessness where a person may say, you know what, I've tried to be a Christian This just isn't working. Maybe I'm not even saved. I I don't know. I don't understand my own actions, for I do the very thing I hate, not the thing I want to do. See, and they're actually articulating Romans 7, but they've never been shown it. It's so important to train Christians in Romans 7 so that they can understand that, in a sense, this is supposed to be happening, and it's actually good news for them and not bad news that there's this conflict so that we can lead them into Romans 8, you see. It's very important to be able to do that for others and for ourselves. Now, verse 16, Paul makes an important confession. This is our next point. A confession here in verse 16. We've had this as a point before about this whole passage being the confession of sin, but this is a little different confession, and I want you to notice it. Now, he says, if I do what I do not want, so when I fail, this is what I do. I agree with the law that it is good. I agree with the law that it is good. I confess that God's law is right, that what I did was wrong, and I shouldn't have done it, and I should have done what God said, because God's law is right. Once again, Paul said, we as Christians, we're not going to throw out God's law. We're going to uphold it, even when we sin. Because the problem is sometimes we have the tendency when we sin to want to diminish the law to diminish our sinfulness. In other words, to maybe alter the law to make something we know is sin not to be sin or not to be as bad as uh, we think it is. So we kind of uh, dial it down a little bit or maybe just totally reconstruct our understanding of what is right and wrong all the way until we live in any lifestyle we want and say, no, this is okay. Somehow we work that all out in our minds. It's so important, and it's an important part of the process of dealing with your indwelling sin, friends, when you fail to say to God, not only did I sin, but that your law is right, and I should have done that, and I want to do that, so help me do that, you see. There's a difference in that. We're admitting that God's law is what is right. We are the wrong ones that have done what is wrong, and we want to learn to do what is right. It's all part of the confession. That's why Paul says, when I do this, this is what I do. He's counseling you in this. If you say, Paul, what do you do when you sin? Well, this is one thing I do. I agree with God. I agree with His law, that His law is good. Now, why does Paul 
still sin. Paul is the apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. He was hand-selected by Jesus and uh, appointed directly by Jesus to be a missionary to the Gentiles and bring the gospel to the Gentiles and write half of your New Testament. Thirteen letters come from Paul in the New Testament. Why does he still sin? What is the culprit? What does he identify as the culprit? Well, let me show you this. Verse 17, verse 20, and 23. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it. I'll explain that in a minute, okay? He says, so now it is no longer I do it, but sin that dwells within me. He does something wrong. What's the problem? Indwelling sin. Everybody say, indwelling sin. That's Christianese language there that you should learn if you haven't learned it yet. We talk about indwelling sin. Now you know what we're talking about. It's that sin that it remains, literally has made its home within us and is still there. It's the effects of our pre-Jesus days and they are still there. He says something similar in verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Or down in verse 23. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that, listen, dwells in my members, the members of my body. The way sin works is it's within us and it uses our body after taking hold of our minds and it uses our body to accomplish sinful desires and wrong actions. That's what he means by that. That's the culprit. Our indwelling sin is the problem. As a matter of fact, if it were not for indwelling sin, listen to me, Paul would not sin. And neither would you. Indwelling sin is the culprit and he identifies it. Did you notice in verse 21, he even calls it a law? Here's a law, here's a principle. I find it to be a law when I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. It's the law of his life, frankly, in one sense, that even when he wants to do what is right, this indwelling sin is right there. Now again, an important side note, in chapter 8, we're not going to settle in with our indwelling sin and say, oh well, okay, I guess we just have indwelling sin and I'm not going to do much with sin. No, we're going to go to war with our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and the weapons God has given us. There's victory for the Christian. But it's so important to understand the reason you sin, the reason you sin every time is because of indwelling sin. And in that moment, in that place, in that time, you gave into it. Okay? Now, there are three reasons I think it's important for Paul to identify this culprit of indwelling sin and three reasons why he drew drew these out. Actually, there's more, but I only have time for three that I'll bring out. Number one, it's a warning to us. You need to be warned that within you, you have this indwelling sin that is so pervasive 
and so problematic that even when you want to do right, you want to do the right thing. Or you want to serve God. You want to respond in the right way. This indwelling sin, this evil lies close at hand. It's always there. Jim Berg, in a book I had to read when I was in seminary, I took his class and he wrote a book and he was talking about this, the section on indwelling sin. And he referred to it like a, like a, uh, a car that is in idle, an automobile that is an idle. And it's actually uh, ready at any moment for somebody to punch the gas and take off. It's never fully dormant. It's always there. Now, can you understand, friends, think about this. Can you understand how important it is to, under, to, to know that the depravity that you were born with continues with you today and that it can lead you into sin now? Have you ever had people you looked up to fall into grievous sin and you were like, how could that happen? What do you mean, Christian, how can that happen? They have indwelling sin like you do. This is why Paul had to tell the Corinthian church, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. This is why Jesus warned his disciples, watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. Because here's the thing, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Sin is always crouching at the door. It's always ready to ruin that next relationship. It's always ready to say that that next hurtful word that will never be forgotten. It's it's always ready to ruin that marriage over pornography or over sexual immorality. It's always there, it's ready, it's willing, it's able. It's just looking for the Christian who is not on guard. The devil could have no influence over us at all if it were not for the indwelling sin in us. You see how he's warning us? Roman church, Calvary Bible church. We have got a whole room full of evil. Yes, evil in us. Indwelling sin. Ready to ruin, destroy, ravage. We need to be warned about that. To be careful. Why do you think Jesus built it into the daily prayer for every Christian to say, Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Not just the evil one, but the evil in me that would love to cooperate with the evil one. Please help me. That's why David, the psalmist, said, Lord, hold me back from my presumptuous sin. He pictured himself like a man leaning over the precipice of a cliff and needing God to just hold him so that he didn't leap off. Friends, I think as Christians, sometimes we become too confident. I don't think we understand enough the dangers of our own indwelling sin. And unfortunately, sometimes God has to allow us to see it before we can take action against it. Secondly, this is important. Knowing about our indwelling sin and the culprit of our sin keeps us from blaming anyone else or any circumstance 
or any situation for our sin. What we want to do with our sin is blame. And I don't blame us for wanting to do that. We hate that sin is on us. When we fail, we want that off of us. We don't want to look as bad as we are, or think about ourselves as bad as we truly are. It's hard to do that. It's very uncomfortable. But being able to identify indwelling sin as the culprit for why Paul did wrong and why you and I do wrong at times, identifying that is so important because it keeps us in those moments from blaming anyone else. Did you know, best illustration I've ever heard, I think I've shared it in this auditorium before uh, a number of years ago, comes from Paul Tripp about this. See, you have to understand, friends, nobody can make you sin. So if your spouse or your friend or your coworker or whatever, if you sin with them, in a, let's say in a relationship setting, you sinned against them, you can't blame them for that. What happened is your indwelling sin got revealed. Here, I have two water bottles here. Some of you maybe remember this illustration, okay? This water bottle is full, okay? And let's pretend that this water represents indwelling sin, okay? Now, if I take this bottle... Let me get out of the way here. You didn't know you were in a Gallagher show, did you? If I take this bottle and I shake it, what's going to happen? The sin's going to come out, right? Sin's going to come out. You typically, the sin is just pouring out. The water's just pouring out. Why is it pouring out? Is it pouring out because I'm shaking it in part, but it's really pouring out because there's water in the bottle? Because let me show you something. I could take this bottle and I can... Shake it, turn it upside down, put it on the ground, step on it like this, throw it across the room like that, and guess what? How much water came out of the bottle? No water, because there's no sin in it. You see, the reason you sin is not because of anyone else. It's not because of your background or your education level or your culture or the color of your skin or the country you live in. Nobody makes you sin. You sin because in you, you have indwelling sin. And the proof of that is in the person of Jesus Christ. A man born in poverty. A man born in a despised people group. A man born in a land that was systemically bent against him. A man whose friends and family turned away from him. A man who his whole ministry was every day his authority, his teaching, his ministry was questioned. Every day. You read through the Gospels. It's exhausting to read about Jesus getting confronted and all these people he had to, to battle with and try to, uh, to overcome their tests. He, he did it every single day of his life. He is a man who stood toe-to-toe with the devil himself. Which, quite frankly, most of us have never had that experience. The spiritual warfare we, most of us have probably experienced are from demonic forces. The devil doesn't probably know you or give two cents about you. Jesus went toe-to-toe with the devil, then was betrayed by his friends, was publicly humiliated, abused. He was mocked, 
tortured, hung on a cross, and as he's dying, naked there and ashamed, they're mocking him. He still doesn't sin. His only words, essentially, one of the only phrases was, Father, forgive these people who are mocking me and killing me, for they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. Because Jesus has no sin in the bottle. You could shake him, crush him, and throw him across the room, and there's no sin. And he's the only man, the only human being, since the time of Adam and Eve in the fall, that can say that. He's the only man, the only human being, friends, since uh, the time of Adam and Eve, for whom verses 13 through 25 of Romans 7 have no application. We need to know about our indwelling sin because it is our tendency to look around the room and see who we're going to blame for what we've done. And that is wrong. We sin because we are sinners. Thanks be to God for our Savior who's wasn't a sinner, isn't a sinner, didn't sin, and then went to the cross and paid for all of our sins and failures, you see. We need to know about this indwelling sin, and finally I'll leave us with this one. We need to know about it because it reminds us that we need to put that old sinful nature away and put on the new nature God has given us. We need to put the pre-Jesus person behind, and we need to put on the new person God's created us to be. Isn't that what we read earlier? Ephesians 4, verses 19 through 24. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him it as the truth is in Jesus, listen, to put off your old self now, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, be renewed in the spirit of your minds about who you are now in Christ. This is going to be key in Romans chapter 8. Renew your minds about how God has made you now, who you are now, the new man in Christ, now that you are, the new woman in Christ that you are now. We renew our minds and put on the new self uh, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is where we're headed, friends, when we get into Romans 8. God does not want us to live every day of our lives in Romans 7. We're always going to be Romans 7 Christians to this extent that it's going to be a part of our journey, but it's not the whole story. And when we're feeling this, we need a fresh reminder of who God has made us to be, and we need to, get, we need to hightail it into Romans chapter 8 to see what God wants from us and how He's going to glorify Himself in us through His Spirit. Let's pray.